Don't you feel like you have a lot more room? A lot of the students are gone, so we can just kind of lounge out. I see some of you laying down up there. I'm just kidding. All right, if you want to borrow a Bible, raise your hand, please. And the ushers will bring you a Bible. And when you are done, you can just stick it back in the pew afterwards. Hey, this Saturday is going to be a marriage seminar. And so I would encourage those of you who are married to consider going to the seminar. It's going to be at the church office. It's going to be free, uh, taught by the Klinkners and the Ewans. Uh, they're great uh, couples to just to build into your lives. You know, marriage should be a thing that we've got to kind of have tune-ups, check-ups, Often, and this will be one of those great opportunities for you to go and work on your marriage and grow. In fact, the summer is a great time to grow in a variety of areas of your life. I would encourage you not to waste your summer, but to use it as a time for spiritual growth. And part of that growth will happen here on Sunday morning as we get in the Word. And we're going through the, the book of Matthew every week. And today I'm going to talk about this uh, great uh, man of John the Baptist, and what I'm going to attempt to do is make a direct connection with your life, because it seems that Jesus makes that same sort of connection. And I think John the Baptist is a great guy to look at, especially on Father's Day. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak, of course, to men and to women, but mainly to men, and encourage you and build you up and spur you on to emulate this, this great man, John the Baptist. So let's turn to Matthew 11. That's where we're at. We're in Matthew 11. And I'm going to read this to you, so let's all stand as we read Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And they went away. Jesus began, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and senders, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. 
may be seated. Before we jump into the details of the whole passage, I want you to see the connection between John the Baptist and us. It's in verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one has been born on this earth, besides Jesus, of course, who is greater than John the Baptist greater than Moses. He is greater than King David. He is greater than Abraham. And the reason why John is so great is he was the the forerunner to Jesus Christ. He prepared the way for the Messiah, and he did a great job at it. He got to witness Jesus. All the Old Testament prophets are pointing that direction. And finally, with John, the last in the line of those prophets, gets to witness Christ, and he was bold, and he was aggressive in proclaiming Jesus and pointing to Jesus. John is the last one of these old era prophets, and he kind of just launches or springs into the new era. Some have called him like a, a launching pad. He is this hinge figure that brings us from the old to the new, and he did it faithfully preparing the way of Jesus. And so John, the greatest ever born. But look what else he says in verse 11. Yet the one who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So as great as John is, the greatest ever born, right? It is saying here, Jesus is saying here, that those in the kingdom are greater. This doesn't mean that John wasn't saved, but it's basically saying that for those of us who are in the kingdom, We have this privilege that John did not have. And there's a variety of ways that this is explained. Some have called, uh, you know, John has been called the friend of the bridegroom, and we have been called the bride of Christ. You know, John kept pointing forward to Jesus and this great future in Jesus. But but John never got to witness the, the cross, the resurrection, and the filling of the Spirit. But we, those who are under the reign of God in Christ, we get to witness all of those things, experience those things, proclaim the cross of Christ, His resurrection, and we have this greater privilege than John did. So as great and as awesome as John was and pointing to Jesus, we're greater. We have greater privileges. We have greater experience. We, we know the fullness that John was pointing to. And so this is what we're going to do. If John was so awesome and pointing to Jesus, and he had yet to experience all that we've experienced, I think John is a great man for us to emulate and point to, point to Christ as people who have been filled with the Spirit, forgiven in the cross, understanding the resurrection of Jesus. There should be this, as we walk in his footsteps, almost this greater emulation in our own lives as men. Like I said, I'm speaking to the women as well, but mainly to the men today. Because when we as men see other men go all out for Christ, it encourages us to examine our lives and desire to go all out for Christ as well. John the Baptist is such a man we're going to examine today. So let's jump in. Start with verse 1. So when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? That's amazing. So John's in prison. He's in this dungeon, all right? And he hears about Jesus' preaching. He hears about his, his deeds. And while he is in prison, he starts to have some doubts. And he wonders if Jesus is really the promised Messiah or should they expect another? Which, which is amazing because John was the one that actually prepared the way for Jesus. He's the one that made this great, these great pronouncements about Christ. He's the one that said, Jesus is mighty. John is the one that said, Jesus is the judge. I'm not going to rehash all his, his former teachings. You can see them back in Matthew 3. But let me put up a couple of them. Uh, this is Matthew 3, 11 and 12. This is what John said previously. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing winning fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John is in prison after he's preached this, and I'm wondering while he's in prison if he is referencing the fire of Jesus. And it's the fire of Jesus that could be causing John some doubts. Because if Jesus was to come with fire and judgment, where, where are the fire and judgment? But why is he in jail? It's almost like John is like going, excuse me, where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Why am I rotting here in jail if you are going to be the Messiah that brings the fire and judgment? And so he has doubts. And I'm not saying this in a really sick kind of way, but I'm saying it in an honest way. I am glad that the great John the Baptist had doubts. Yeah? As a, a man who, who has doubts and, and struggles since my baptism... And I know some men in here have had doubts since your baptism. Here's a man who actually baptized Jesus. And he has doubts. You see, what often happens as men that are Christians, we seem to think that we have to have it all together. We have to put up on this front that we never struggle and we never have doubts. And that we're firm and that we're solid and we never waver in our faith. But the problem is, is that all of us men, you internally know from time to time, we all have struggles. We all have doubts. I mean, here's the great John the Baptist. He's been called and gifted by God to proclaim Jesus. And he's not proclaiming Jesus while he's rotting in the jail. And I, and I just want to say kind of as an aside here, one of the most frustrating things for men is to be called and gift it to do a certain work, and it's just not happening. You start messing with the guy's work. I don't know what it looks like in your life, but you start messing with the guy's work. It just does something in us. I, don't, I can't explain it. Like if there is a gifted preacher who has no outlet to preach, or if there is a gifted artist or musician that has no outlet to express that, if there is a gifted businessman who is not able to express his talents or use his skills, I don't know what happens to us, but sometimes as men, one of the most frustrating things is that when we feel gifted to glorify God with our talents and it's not happening, it will cause some doubts. Because what we may be thinking is that, God, if you've called me to do this, if you've gifted me, 
If you give me these talents, then why am I not using them? It's like we have certain expectations and God is not meeting them. And we have doubts. And for John, he had certain expectations on the way Jesus should function. And he's not functioning in line with his own preaching. And so, he has doubts. Well, let's look at Jesus' response to John's doubts. Verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's almost like, John knows that. He heard about that while he was in prison. And so Jesus emphasizes this again. And what he's doing, he's emphasizing the things that are specifically spoken about in the book of Isaiah that are pointing to this future messianic time where Jesus is now manifesting these things that were spoken about in Isaiah from healing of the lepers to the people that can't walk or walking the blind or seeing all this great compassion is being poured out upon the poor as they are hearing the good news. And it's, it's happening now in Jesus. And, and Jesus is just reiterating all these things that Isaiah spoke about. And then he adds on verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's, that's a little rebuke. That's a rebuke that's headed toward John. That's a rebuke that's headed towards the disciples. It's a little rebuke. It's not a harsh one. It's a small, mild rebuke. Because once again, John and his disciples say, yeah, I, I could see them responding back. Yeah, Jesus, we know all the Isaiah passages. We know it speaks about all your healing and all your compassion. But I bet they would also say the Isaiah passages also speak about judgment and fire. Where's the judgment and fire, Jesus? And Jesus is like, John, you don't see the big picture. The judgment and fire, they're coming at the right time. But you've got to hold off. John doesn't have it all figured out yet. He thinks he does. There's still the cross. <laughs> There's still the resurrection. There's still the filling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, judgment and fire, they're going to come. They're going to come. They're going to come at his, his second coming. But John is limited in the way he sees the big scope of things. And he wants a judgment and fire now. And, and I think what we often do is we make the similar mistake. We assume that we want no sin now. We want complete justice now. We want everything to go perfect in our relationships now. But there is going to come a time where that will be future when Christ comes back, that he is secured through his cross. He is secured through his resurrection. But now it, it's not perfect. Now we suffer. Now we have problems. But we can trust in God's overall plan in Christ. And get this. The same Jesus who's having compassion on all these people suffering is the same Jesus that cares for John in prison. And it's the same Jesus that cares for us as we also suffer now. God has a grand plan. He's working it out in his timing, in his way. Could you imagine if John was God and not Jesus? He probably would have called off the cross, right? Just call off the cross. Bring the fire now. But God has a better plan. Let's see, it worked out more. This is, this is, this is you now it gets really, really good. Because now Jesus moves on for this mild rebuke. 
and he starts commending John the Baptist. Look at verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I mean, the crowds are familiar with John. Think about this. He's the first prophet that has shown up in 400 years. He shows up on the scene, and now he's in jail, and the great prophet they went out to see in the wilderness is having some doubts about Jesus. And maybe the crowd is starting to say, well, well, look at John. He's waffling. He's becoming a little soft in prison. Maybe he had this whole messianic thing messed up. Maybe Jesus really isn't the Messiah. And Jesus is, is like, okay, crowd, let's stop right there. Let's talk about John. Who did you go out to see? Did you just go out there to see this little reed blown in the wind by public opinion? No, you didn't go out there to see this man blown by public opinion. This is a man who preached the word of God. He preached the truth of God so much that he got thrown into the dungeon. He got thrown into the prison because he went up and he started confronting this man named Herod Antipas for his adultery. John was not swayed at a read of public opinion. He preached the truth of God and got himself thrown into jail. So John was firm, not swayed. He was solid and he was uncompromising. We need men like that. We need men who are firm, solid, uncompromising. And sometimes you wonder where they've all gone. Do you have a man in your life, whether you're a man or a woman, do you have a man in your life that you know of who will come up to you and speak truth right to you? A man who will be gracious enough to come up to you and when you are in sin, confront you. I'm I'm, I'm just being honest. Do you know someone in your life right now who has no problem confronting you lovingly in your sin? We often lack these men because of personal compromise. I mean, you can't go and confront someone in adultery. If you're in adultery, you can't speak the truth of God to someone else if you're not willing to speak to God to, to yourself. And you kind of say, well, where have all the men gone? Where have all these uncompromising, firm and solid men gone? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you where they've gone. They're, they're right out here. Yeah, they're, they're right here. Here are the men that are firm and solid and uncompromising, and a lot of them have shut their mouth because of their own personal sin. And you, may, you may wonder, why am I such a wimp when it comes to speaking up the truth? Well, it's probably because you have some secret sin that no one else knows about. And so, you're quiet. You don't say much. You see someone in sin, you don't say anything. You see people going astray, you don't say anything. And, and right now, it's, it's, it's just harming you and maybe your friends. But what's, what, what's going to happen when you start having kids? And your kids are going to be going wayward, and you're like, um, I really can't say much to them because I kind of got my own issues. It's just going to get worse. And so if we have any men in here who have been shut up by compromise, 
there is a way to break out of that. I mean, it simply starts with repentance and faith in the gospel. It's almost like falling in the message of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, of repentance, repent. There is a way out of that. Well, Jesus continues commending John. It gets even better. Look at the the rhetorical question again in verse 8. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Now, I'm not going to go off you men uh, about the way you dress, all right? <laughs> That's not the issue here. But it, it, it's funny to think about John the Baptist. He's, he's not some prim and proper guy who's in the palace, but he's rough. He, he probably stinks. He is nasty looking. He, he lives out in the wilderness, or he did live out in the wilderness, with garment of camel's hair, with a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I just can't imagine what the guy looked like. And he, so he's not this politician in the palace making all these wise, political, expedient moves, but he's calling people to repentance. And I would love to see a, a group of men who are not trying to be politically correct to appease uh, the masses, but some more men who are prophetic by God's grace to confront the masses. All right, John, he's more than a prophet. Jesus is going to explain that in verse 9 and 10. What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yeah, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, this gets kind of dicey. I'm not going to get into all the details. I will refer you back to Malachi. Did you know that before we started Matthew, we were preaching the book of Malachi? And Malachi is a good run-up to Matthew. But back in Malachi, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, which Jesus quotes here, he's saying that John is more than a prophet. He's this forerunner who fulfilled prophecy to prepare the way for the Messiah. And there's another reference that Jesus makes to Malachi here. Look at verse 13 and 15. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, th- this here is a reference to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, as we have John the Baptist, who is this Elijah-like figure who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. You, you think about in our own time, um, back then they would have a king before a king would enter a country. He would send out messengers to prepare the way. And now we can think of the president or a dignitary coming to town. You send out to clear the road so his car can come through. And that's kind of the concept of John the Baptist. He says, he says the Messiah is coming and he's bringing people to repentance. He's speaking truth. He's the first prophet in 400 years to bring this repentance to prepare the way for the long-awaited Lord. And then we have the verse that we have already seen in verse 11. Truly I say to you among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We already talked about that. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I like this verse. It's one of my favorite verses, but I must be honest with you. It's really hard to translate, and I may be off here, but there's two, there's two ways to translate it. 
the ESV, the, most of you have the ESV, English Standard, Standard Version, has this passive sense where the idea is that something is done to believers. Violence is done to believers as we are in the kingdom. For example, John is in prison. We spent most of our time in chapter 10 talking about all the violence and opposition that will come against believers. So maybe that's the way it should be understood. Uh, Another way that this verse is commonly uh, interpreted is the more of the active sense. And that is something we do as the kingdom forcefully advances as we aggressively embrace the kingdom. This is, for those of you who have the New International Version, the NIV, this is expressed in Matthew eleven twelve. Let me put it up for you. You can tell it's a different take on it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Uh, now, this translation it could fit the context as well because here you have John the Baptist. Can you think of a more of a forceful man than John the Baptist as he is this aggressive kingdom launcher and the kingdom often advances through the efforts of forceful men. Now, I'm not sure which translation is right. Um, I'm going to explain uh, this, this text because I think both could fit the context. So I'm going to explain, explain it as if the NIV, uh, let me just kind of talk about the NIV version for a second. These men that advance the kingdom are not apathetic. These men that advance the kingdom are not lazy about the things of God. These men who advance the kingdom are all in with the ways of God, and they're going to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to a lost world. And you can identify these men within this congregation right away. You can identify the men in this congregation who are advancedly and forcefully advancing the gospel. You can identify them because they're men who are locked in. You ever just talk to some of the guys in this congregation, and it's almost like you can say there's something else going on up here. It's not that they're crazy, but they're thinking about bigger things. They're thinking about kingdom things. They may may have a lot of stuff going on, but they're locked in to kingdom things. They're not caught up with a lot of trivial pursuits. They don't have a lot of trivial habits. They don't have a lot of trivial hobbies. They're really just locked in to kingdom ways. And, and I saw one of these men this past uh, Tuesday night. What we did uh, this past Tuesday is many of us gathered together uh, as uh, talk about uh, ethos community leadership training. Uh, for those of you who are new, our, our small groups are called ethos communities. And it's, we think it's a bit more than small groups, and we have these leaders. So we, we gathered all these leaders on Tuesday night to talk about ethos communities and leading them. And one of the men there was, was Ben Mangridge. He was a leader of an ethos community last year. He leads one right now, and he wants to lead one next year. And we were asking, he was on this panel, and he was being asked the question, why do you lead an ethos community or why do you want to lead an ethos community next year? I mean, he could have gone on and give all these long and drawn-out explanations. But you know what he said? This is all he said. He said, because I love Jesus. I thought, that's a brilliant answer. That's great. Because I love Jesus. Here's a man who is locked in to kingdom ways. And it's through men like Ben that the kingdom is forcefully advancing as forceful men, aggressive men, lay hold of the ways of God and get so locked into kingdom ways because we're in love with Jesus. 
not trying to prove anything to you. We just love Jesus and what he's done for us. He's laid down his life for us. He, he grabbed us and saved us out of our sin. You're not forcing me to do anything. I want to be forceful for Jesus because I love him. That's awesome. And that's how the kingdom advances. Well, let's finish up here this little... Uh, Jesus is talking to the crowd now. He, he's confronting the crowd for their lack of response. I was talking to my, my son about this, these verses recently. These are, these are, these are kind of fun verses. It's, it, it's talking about a game that kids used to play. Look at verse 16 and 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates... We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. So Jesus is comparing the crowd to children playing games in the marketplace. It seemed like one of the games was a wedding game, and one of the games was a funeral game. I, I mean, I know a lot of people that play kids that play wedding games. I don't know how many kids that play funeral games. Back then, apparently, there was a wedding game and a funeral game. So the wedding game, I mean, we're just kind of guessing how it went, but it went something like this. They would play the flute, some kids would play the flute, and then the other kids were supposed to dance like you would dance at a wedding. And said, okay, now let's switch it over to the funeral game. And at the funeral game, we would sing, I don't know, some depressing song, and then everybody would be crying and mourning, and that's the way the game went. And so Jesus is saying, this is the crowd. This generation doesn't want to play the games. Jesus showed up on the scene and he was festive, you know, like a happy occasion like you would have at a wedding. And then the crowd, the generation didn't respond rightly. Well, maybe the crowd wants more of a funeral hmm, Game. So John the Baptist shows up, and he is, you know, he's not the most chipper guy. He's pretty scary looking, and he's preaching this message of repentance and mourning, and there was no response there either. Well, look at the way Jesus explained it. Look at verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. <laughs> That's great. So he's ascetic out in the desert, not at the festive parties, and like, oh, John, he's got a demon. And verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him! He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's like they, they just can't win. So John, he, John doesn't eat. He, he's not drinking. And they say he's got a demon. And Jesus, he doesn't, he, Jesus does eat and drink. And they say, Oh, you're, you're a glutton and a drunkard. And, and Jesus is like, Give me a break. You, you got both, and, and you responded wrong to both of them. And look what Jesus ends by saying. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That means Jesus and John lived in such a way that just by the fact that they fulfilled their callings and the way that they were living in their righteous actions proves that wisdom will prevail. So this generation may think that John and Jesus are absolutely foolish and they responded wrongly to them in their different roles. But regardless of how their generation responds, wisdom will prevail. And this is, this is 
such an encouraging word for us as men to, to press through and to continue to follow Jesus in faithfulness, regardless of how the world responds. Because to be honest with you, most of the world, just to tell you guys, most of the world thinks you're, you're wasting your life. Most of the world says, you're just, you're missing it. You're wasting your time following Jesus when you could actually be doing better things with your time, with your money, and with your energy. And you're kind of just missing out. And, and, the, and the scary thing is that sometimes we wonder the same, yeah? Like, I'm missing out. But I want to encourage you as men to tell you that Jesus is real. A real historical figure that showed up as the great God-man for real died on the cross, for real was buried, really rose again. Now as a sinner at the right hand of the Father, this, is, this, this gospel proclamation we have is so real. And so when your friends, your neighbors, and your colleagues may be dogging you and saying you're wasting your time, wisdom will prevail. Jesus Christ, the gospel is real. And we want to continue to press on in a dismissive generation and hold truth to Christ. And John the Baptist is that man who did just that all the way to having his head cut off and served up on a platter. And we'll get there. We'll get there. But he is such a man, a man of God that can be emulated. And you know what's so cool? Men, we're greater than John. We're greater than John. Greater privilege of being associated with the gospel and knowing the cross and the resurrection and the filling of the Spirit. And so if we are called by Jesus, even the least of us, greater than John the Baptist, then I think it is wise for us to go all out in serving Christ. And it's not just going to happen overnight. You're not just going to say, all right, today I am now going to go all out in serving Jesus. You've got to put together a plan. You've got to have a way forward. If you're a man here this morning and you want to go all out in serving Jesus Christ, today is a day you've got to put something together and start to figure things out. And I think the summer is the perfect time to do that. I remember my summer where I really grew in the Lord back in 1992. That's two years after I became a believer. I was going to school at Arkansas Tech University, but I decided to spend a summer taking two classes up here at Wheaton College. And I thought I was going to come to Wheaton College. It was going to be packed full of students. It was going to be a blast. But I got here. Basically, no one was on campus at all. Like me and 10 other people. I mean, mean, that's exaggerating, but there was hardly anybody there. And I thought, you know what? It's time for me to grow. And so I spent a significant amount of time by myself got as many Christian books as I could get. I did not understand what it really meant to walk the Lord. I was just learning. And that summer, as a man of God, I learned what does it mean to walk in purity. I learned that summer, what does it mean, spiritual disciplines? What does it mean to memorize Scripture? What does it mean to be a part of a church? What does it mean to be a servant and to live on mission? And as a man of God, that summer of 1992 was so significant for me. I feel like I grew so much. But I believe that 
every summer should be significant for us. And every summer, there's things that we can still work on. You've got to admit, our schedules are kind of pushed back a bit. We have a little bit more time on our hands. And it should be a time where we hone in on a certain issue, maybe a certain sin, maybe a certain area we want to grow in and say, okay, this summer, by the time it's over, I'm going to start dealing with this. For me, last summer, I was telling my wife uh, last night, I mean, I'll just share this with you, it's very weird. Uh, I watched the concluding, uh, this uh, series finale of Lost last year. Maybe some of you watched it as well. And I remember after watching that, just being extremely depressed, thinking this, this is a terrible ending. Purgatory and all this other stuff, what's going on? This is not the way it should be. And I just felt terrible. I felt terrible just in a lot of ways. So it just made me feel terrible. That do people really believe this stuff? And it was interesting. That summer, last summer, based upon this crazy ending of loss and examining the scriptures, I made some changes in my own life. Isn't that weird? What God uses, he's lost. And so, I, and so last summer was a significant summer of growth for me in, 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 in spiritual disciplines and scripture memory. I was like, oh, this is great because I, I want to know the word. I want to memorize huge chunks of the Bible. So last summer was significant for me. But this summer I thought, you know, there's still some things I can work on. And this summer I thought, you know what? I stink at evangelism. I stink at it. I want to get better at it. And so I'm like, okay, this is the summer. I got to work on this evangelism. And we have this evangelism class. We're spurring weather on on Thursday mornings. We're we're building one another up to go and share our faith. But but I'm just kind of wondering, man, what is it for you? Is is it going to be like your summer just happens and then it's over and you are just still the same old guy? Or is it going to be a summer of growth? Maybe there's a certain area of sin that you really want to work on. You say, you know what? I want some victory in this purity area. I want some victory in this area of greed. And start putting people around you. Put a plan in place to grow. Or maybe it's it's an area you want to grow in spiritual disciplines. You want to grow in fasting and scripture memorying and prayer. And say, okay, I'm going to build a plan here. By the time summer is over... I'm going to already have grown in this area. And so when the time the fall hits, it's like, boom, you just carry it throughout the next year. So let's just utilize our summers to make the most of every opportunity and going all out for Jesus. Those who are aggressive in the kingdom of God, aggressive about our own growth in Christ and aggressive in moving the kingdom forward and advancing the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I do pray that my brothers here would not let their summer end stuck in the same old patterns. And so if there are some of my brothers here who are stuck in just a, just a terrible way of, of interacting with their wives, that they would do something to take steps to move in the direction of loving their wives as Christ loved the church. If some of my brothers are stuck in immorality, that they would use this summer to surround their lives with people, accountability, your word, filling of your spirit, to move in the direction of purity. And I pray for my brothers, Lord, that they would stand up and no longer be in passive men stuck in personal sin, that we would be bold gospel proclaimers, 
bold confronters of sin in our own life and encouraging others to walk in holiness because we love you, Jesus. We have been redeemed by you, Jesus. This is not duty for us. This is joy for us. But Lord, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, may may my brothers not waste their lives, not just continue to fall away from you or to be apathetic about you, but to really want to follow you. And Lord, I just ask you to use the women in our lives, our friends, our wives, our daughters, our moms, to spur us on. Lord, to give a vision to the women in here, how they can encourage the men in their lives and point them to Jesus and not hinder them from following Jesus, but but thrust them more and more into following Christ and praying for them and pointing them to Jesus in the word and encouraging them. So give a vision, a great vision to the women in here as well. And so, Lord, we really want to to bring you praise and glory and honor with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.